verse 15, John writes, and he says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abides forever. By the time John is writing this letter, uh, John is into what would be the third generation of the church. He was the last living apostle at the time of this writing, and he had been there when the church first began. He had seen the explosive power of Pentecost and the radical conversion of thousands of souls there in Jerusalem in the early days. And he had seen the church go through the the soaring heights of those first days, and he had seen throughout the years as things happened and as Satan grabbed footholds and as progress was made and then ground was given up and then progress was made. And as we come now to this time in John's life, well over 90 years old, we see that the church has changed much from what it was in the very beginning. What was simple, what was powerful, what was clear at the very beginning by this time has become somewhat obscured and some of the people had become somewhat confused and many things had kind of attached itself or attached themselves to the church and now the ministry of the apostles went from one of primarily evangelism and teaching to now also defending and and giving reason for what the faith is and establishing the boundaries of what it is. And so John writes this letter in order to bring some much-needed clarity to some whose vision and sense had gone blurry. And so time has a way of doing that. And so John writes a very simple message to us to bring us back to simplicity. And it answers the very simple question, what is a a Christian? What is Christianity? And what isn't a Christian. And he seeks to define that in very clear and certain terms. Now, where we left off in the the previous passage, John has just finished giving to us the verses of what was most likely a, a, a song or a hymn there in the early church, where he spoke to the children in the faith, to the young men in the faith, and to the fathers in the faith. And one of the the, the highlights of that song or or the, the points that John was seeking to bring out in that is that a part of Christian growth and development is that of overcoming the obstacles that present themselves to us as we seek to pursue the things of God. And it doesn't take long as a Christian, one who walks with God, to recognize that there are things that seek to uh, trip us up or to stumble us or to in some way subvert us and get us off course from the direction that we've originally been called to. And God is faithful to give us everything that we need to overcome those difficulties and obstacles that are thrown down in our way. And in our text tonight, in verses 15 through 17, John addresses one of the great obstacles that is cast in the way of every believer in Jesus Christ from the very beginning all the way until the time that he returns again. And that obstacle is what John calls the world. And he begins the passage and the exhortation here by giving to us a very simple command there in verse 15. He tells us as Christians and as the church that we are not to love the world, neither the things that are in the world. Now, when he talks about loving the world, he's not talking about creation or about the beauty of the world or the things that God has made. And he's not talking about the people of the world, for we absolutely know already that we're called to be lovers of people, even as God is a lover of people. But what he's talking about when he says that we're not to love the world is that we're not to love the system of the world. We're not to love the world's affairs and we're not to love the aggregate of worldly things. That is that which is common among men or that is what makes up the ideals and the values of this world's system. When God first made man upon the earth and he created the world and he made the garden and then he set Adam in it. God gave to Adam a very uh, simple instruction. He said to him, be fruitful and multiply. 
And then he said that Adam was to fill the earth. The word in the King James is replenish, but the word in the Hebrew just simply means to fill or to satisfy the world or to just fill it with people. And then he said, and you're to subdue it. And when God gave Adam the world, God gave Adam authority and dominion over the whole of the planet, over all of its systems, every part of it. He specifically gave to Adam dominion over the air, over the earth, and over the sea. And he told Adam that the whole world would yield to him, that the field and the ground would yield to him its fruit. And that everything would yield to him in submission. God made Adam or man as our representative, the one who would rule over this world. However, in the day that Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they succumbed to the subtle suggestion of Satan that God's word wouldn't come to pass and that they wouldn't lose control. On that day, Satan, the devil, our adversary, He took control of the world away from Adam, and he became what Jesus would call the God of this age. Paul would call the devil in his letters the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works or reigns among the sons of disobedience. And ever since the fall of man, Satan has been the one that has been in control of the affairs and the kingdoms of this world. Man went spiritually blind, his lights went out, and in his spiritual blindness, man became easy to influence and control. And thus Satan has been the the one who's had dominion over the governments, the values, the economies, the morals, the entertainments, and the pursuits and beyond of worldly things ever since the fall of man. Satan has been the usurper. In Luke chapter 4, when Jesus was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights, one of the temptations that Satan threw before the very Son of God is that he said, look, look at all the kingdoms of the world. And he showed them to Jesus in a moment of time. And he said to Jesus, if you will bow down and worship me, I'll deliver these to you, for they've been given to me and I can give them to whosoever I want. He said that to Jesus. Now, Jesus didn't say, yeah, right, devil. Don't you know who I am? I'm the captain. No, no, no. According to what God had given to man, and then what man had lost to Satan, Satan was absolutely right. He was and is the prince of the power of the air. He can give it to whomsoever he will. Satan successfully dethroned man from having dominion over the world. However, Satan didn't successfully dethrone God from being the high king over all. And thus, here's what we come to the conclusion of after the fall of man. Is that there are two kingdoms that are coexistent side by side. There is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the higher kingdom, over which God rules and sits upon the throne of his glory, and nothing can upseat him from that place. He is God over all. But coexisting with the kingdom of heaven right now is what the Bible calls the kingdoms of this world. And the kingdom of this world is ruled by the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age, lowercase g, that is Satan himself. Now one day the book of Revelation tells us that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. But until that time that Jesus takes the scroll out of the hand of the angel and looses the seals and regains and recontrols the world for his own sake and for his own glory, until that time, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. So there's two kingdoms that are running side by side, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Now, the Bible tells us that you and I, each one of us, that we were citizens in the kingdom of darkness all the way up until the time that we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, God took us, Colossians chapter 1, translated us out of the kingdom of darkness and made us citizens in the kingdom of his dear son. And he gives to us now the clear call that we are to forsake our citizenship and our partaking in this world system And the word to be fully vested in living in his kingdom and in his system. 
That is, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we are to leave this world, that we are no longer of this world. We're to come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 when he prayed for us, even though we hadn't been born yet. He said, Father, I don't pray that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them in your name while they're in the world. Meaning that you and I are called very clearly by God that we are no longer to be citizens, a part of this world system, but that we are to live completely for the higher kingdom to which we've been made citizens through the cross and through the blood and by the grace of Jesus Christ. That's what we've been called into. And now John tells us, as that calling plays out in our daily lives, we are not to coexist being citizens of God's kingdom and yet remaining in a love for the world. When we're called into salvation, we're called out. Now, Jesus said that no man can serve two masters because either he will hate the one and love the other or else he'll cling to the one and despise the other. He said, you cannot serve both God and mammon or money. Just one example of many things that men and women serve with their lives. But the fact of what Jesus was saying is that we cannot serve two. We're going to be devoted to either one or the other. And thus, if we're loving God, we're automatically going to be estranged from the world. But if we're loving the world, then we're automatically going to be estranged from God. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, even as John says. And what John is telling us here in this verse is that the world and God are both competing for our love. And each one of them has a promise, something that it says it will give us if we will give to it our devotion and our love. And each one vies for it, and the two are mutually exclusive The two cannot reconcile or get along with each other, and you can't love both. The second part of the command is not only are we to not love the world, that is its system, but we're not to love the things that are in the world. And then he defines what he means by that in verse 16, as he moves on in the passage and he defines it. He says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The first thing that John identifies with the world and the love of the world or the things that are in the world is what he calls the lust of the flesh or the longings and the desires of the body. Everyone knows what it's like to have longings and desires in his or her body. And John says that we're if we're given to those things, that we're in a place where we're loving the world. Prior again to the fall of man, before Adam and Eve partook of the fruit of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when God placed them in the garden, they were living in in a time and in an age of absolute innocence. The Bible tells us that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day, that they lived in his glory and in his light. The Bible says that they were naked and that they were not ashamed. And by that, it doesn't simply point to the fact that it was physical, that it was what they could see and that they weren't aware of that. But it speaks of a deeper sense. There was a vulnerability, that all things were just open. There was a transparency wherein spiritually they could just see right through one another. They were walking in the light in a sense that you and I have never known with another human being. Not even the closest couple knows what it was like to be what Adam and Eve were in that state prior to the fall of man. There was just such a light and such a glory and such an innocence in their relationship that they had one another prior to that. And the reason why they were so content and why it was so blissful and everything was just right as it was is because they were spiritually alive and the spirit that was in them was the uppermost of their being. And so they were relating to God. They were walking with God. They were drawing from God. There was a constant awareness of his presence and a constant energizing of their life by the spirit of God as they just communed with him and walked with him in the cool of the day. And because they were attached to God spiritually, 
in their soul, which is the seat of their emotions and their being and their mind, their soul was completely satisfied because it was attached to an eternal source of God that could constantly fill and constantly bless. And because their soul was completely satisfied, they were unaware of their flesh. They had bodies They could experience physical things. They could see and touch something tangible. They could experience pleasure in the physical realm. But it was immaterial to them because it wasn't their source. It was simply a byproduct or a medium of expression whereby they related to the physical world that they were in. But their source was from God. It was a pre-fall in state. But when man fell, God said, in the day that you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. Now, we know that Adam and Eve, they didn't die physically that day. That is, their heart didn't stop beating. They continued to live physically. But spiritually, that day, they died. They immediately knew that they were naked. They immediately felt compelled to hide themselves and cover themselves. Their relationship between each other immediately became less than half of what it had been before. Their awareness of God's presence was immediately diminished, if not completely eradicated, to the point where they were so afraid and vulnerable that they literally hid themselves amongst the trees of the garden and covered themselves. They sewed together clothes for themselves to cover their nakedness and to hide from the shame that they were feeling. At the moment that man died spiritually... He was flipped upside down. Wherein the spirit had been uppermost, which satisfied the soul and made the flesh irrelevant. Now the soul, the emotions and the mind, the well-being of man, immediately felt the vacuum and the effects of being separated from God. They were cut off from the source of life. And thus the soul was starved. It felt empty. It needed to be filled with something. It longed for the satisfaction that it was created to enjoy on a continual basis, but it didn't have that source anymore. And so the, the, the soul did the only thing the soul could do in that position, and that was that it turned to the body to now try to fill the vacuum and the void that was inside. And ever since the fall of man, everyone that has been born has been trying to satisfy a longing in the soul with something that could come from a pleasure or a desire or a longing of the body. And what we know is that it is absolutely impossible for any bodily desire to satisfy the need and the capacity of a human soul. The only thing that can satisfy a human soul is an eternal source, and there's only one of those that exists anywhere, and that is the person of God himself. And until a person finds life in God, they will know no life, no satisfaction, and no joy. They will completely and constantly be groping after something in darkness and searching, listless seeking, to find something fulfilling, and it will do that until it finds its rest in God. Man became upside down at the point of the fall, and thus he had tried to satisfy the desires of his soul by meeting them through the desires of the flesh. Now, there are God-given desires. God has given to us. In fact, when God said in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, when God spoke to Adam and Eve, It says that out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and that is good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God made our bodies with desires and with an acceptable means of satisfying those desires. God made those things. They're not all necessarily bad. But when a human being defines those desires and exercises those desires according to the world's standard and the world's rules of what's right and wrong, then that's what John calls here to be loving the world rather than to be loving God. And that's what Satan does. When Satan brought Eve and then Adam to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he told them that they wouldn't die and he deceived them into eating it, The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, that Eve, when she saw that tree, 
It says that she saw that it was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eye. Both of those things were within the boundaries of what God made for her to enjoy. But then she takes it one step further and she said, and it was a tree to be desired to make one wise. The word desired is the same word where we get the word lust. There was a lust attached to the fruit of that tree that brought her beyond the boundaries of what God allowed and what God ordained for man. And listen, anytime we take the desires and the longings of our body and we bring them beyond the boundaries of what God made those senses and those experiences for, we are now living for the lusts of our flesh. We're living for that which is forbidden by God. And man has this amazing propensity to take something that God has made for good and to hijack it and to find a way to exploit it and to extract every bit of pleasure that we can out of it, even if it goes beyond the boundaries of what God created it for, for and what he made it to be. And thus, that is what we mean when we talk about the lust of the flesh or the desires or longings of the body. Now, understand that the boundaries of God, when he sets boundaries on things, I mean, we have pleasures that God has given to us. We have a food drive and, 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 a, and a pleasure sensation that we have when we uh, take in food. God's given to us a sex drive uh, and, and the ability to experience amazing pleasures uh, through that drive. And there are a multiplicity of other ways in which we can experience pleasure in this world, even through our air drive, just a breath of fresh air on a perfect day, or even the way we feel when, when the sun hits our skin someday. You know, <laughs> you know <laughs> or, or once one day, once upon a time or something, you know, there's there's a, a thousand ways that we can experience pleasure. But God sets boundaries in those things because not to restrict us and to restrain us from something, but as a means of protecting and preserving us because he knows that the exploitation of those things or to bring them beyond the boundaries that he's created them for is going to be for us destruction in the long run. And so to live for the pleasures of the body or the desires of the body or to make those things the uppermost in my life and the source of my satisfaction is what John calls to be living in the lust of the flesh. And he says that if I'm doing that, then I'm loving the world and therefore the love of the father is not in me. The second thing that he mentions there is the lust of the eyes or the longings and the desires of the eyes. And certainly, you know, we, we understand the concept of that. You know, oftentimes, you know, we'll, we'll um, be looking at a, a house that we might be interested in purchasing or, or a car or something, and the salesperson will bring us there and they'll say something like, feast your eyes on this. And we look at it and we go, whoa, you know, and, and the unveiling. And there's something that happens. Our eyes go wide and then dim again as we look at it. And this whole chain reaction is happening inside of us as the, the outward appearance of something that we're looking at completely grabs a hold of us and begins to draw upon the strings of our heart and we're lusting towards something. And absolutely, there is an aesthetic value to much of what exists in the world. God made the eye and he made the eye to see God made beauty and he made us with the capacity to recognize and to be attracted to things that are absolutely are beautiful. But here's the problem with the eye. When you couple the eye with the fall of man and spiritual blindness is that the eye can be extremely deceptive because eyes only know a fraction of the story. Eyes can only discern as far as what the physical appearance shows. But eyes physically and what they're attached to in our minds, they can't go underneath the surface of what we're looking at. And therefore, when what the eye sees has been hijacked by something that on the inside is completely different than what it appears to be on the outside, we can find ourselves in a state of vulnerability where we can be deceived, ultimately where we can be destroyed or even killed or where we could even miss out on eternal salvation. When you couple the strongest sense that we have physically, which is our sight, with the weakness of the fact that we are spiritually blind to the unseen things, you have the recipe for a disaster. And therefore, when any human life relies upon the sense of what they see, 
as the right gauge for that's a good thing or that's a bad thing, or that's truth or that's error, or that's light or that's dark, then you have a very vulnerable and very deceivable human being. And the devil knows that very much absolutely uh, in the thing. And he, and, and he and man have learned how to exploit the weakness of man's eyes and use it to deceive and to entice and to enslave. And every one of us knows what that's like. How many of you in here have ever in your lifetime, by show of hands, bought something that is made in China? Okay, then you know exactly what I'm talking about <laughs> when, when I say that the looks of something can be deceiving. Well, that look, that's exactly the same as the thing that cost $400, you know, there. And here it's only four, four cents, you know. Of course I'm going with four cents. Yeah, it'll last four minutes. You know. <laughs> because that which it is on the inside is a far cry from what it is on the outside. And such is all of life. I remember oftentimes when I used to work down in the city, you know, it was not uncommon that at particular times during the day you would see a group of uh, construction workers standing on a balcony and looking across, uh, across the way into the windows of some of the other buildings. And they knew because they were there every day the times when this one was there and this one was getting ready for work. And sometimes they even had binoculars and they'd whistle and hoot and the whole thing. And I knew what they were doing, you know, and I sometimes would just walk by and, and, and just, I would have my tools and my crooked hard hat with, you know, Christian sticker on it or something like that. And I'd look at the guys and I'd say, hey guys, it's a deceptive rapper. And then I'd just walk away, <laughs> you know. But how often we can look at things and we can judge with the appearing of our eyes. And we can think that because something looks a certain way and we can create it in our mind to be something that we want it to be, that that's what it actually is. But to be living for the lust of our eyes is to be living in a state of deception. And to be chasing after those things is the source of our fulfillment. John says that that is loving the world. And to be loving the world is a sure sign that the love of the Father is not in that person. The third thing that John mentions there as an identifier of the things that are in the world is what he calls the pride of life. And the word that he uses there for the word pride comes from a Greek word that is, the Greek word is braggadocio. And you can just imagine for just a moment what that word means in, when you literally translate it into uh, the English language. You ever heard of someone who's braggadocious? You know, that's what it is. And it means to be boasting in my accomplishments or in the attainments of my life. Or more perfectly, to be finding satisfaction or to find my identity in the things that I've attained or in the accomplishments of my life. Finding satisfaction in the showcasing of myself in raising myself or measuring myself over or against someone else. Now, the Bible is absolutely clear that God has made every single one of us for a very specific and a very glorious purpose. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, the Apostle Paul says that you and I, that we are God's workmanship and that we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has before planned or ordained that we should walk in them. In Jeremiah chapter 29, 11, that verse that many of us hold on to so closely, the Spirit of God declares and he says, I know the plans or the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to bring you to an expected end. That is that God has a purpose for each one of our lives, an expected end somewhere that he's seeking to bring us to that he wants us to come to. In Psalm chapter 90, which is the only psalm that we know of that was penned by the man Moses, Moses prays a very powerful thing at the very end of that psalm. And he says, Lord, Please establish thou the works of our hands upon us. The works of our hands, establish them. There's a longing and a heart cry in every one of us that our lives would have meaning and purpose and that there would be something for us here on this world to do that would leave a mark that is lasting that is for the good. In Isaiah chapter 65, verse 22 the promise being yet for the future days when there's no more evil in the world, God makes a promise to his people and he says that my people will long enjoy the works of their hands. And it's an established fact that God has something for each one of us. He has something of purpose and of meaning, something wherein we can find satisfaction for our lives and fulfillment and be glad about the works that we're doing. 
And God, no one can take that away from us. That's something that God has given to every one of us. But when the accomplishment of my life becomes hijacked by the principles and the values of this world system, then no longer are those things used as a platform for my enjoyment and the glory of God and the glory of his name. But now those things become a platform of self-expression and a platform of showcasing myself or putting myself over against someone else or causing someone to be jealous or envious of my life in some way. And when I've done that, I'm no longer using my God-given talents and purposes and gifts for the cause that God has made them for, but now I'm using them in a very worldly and carnal way that robs God of his glory, robs me of my joy, and absolutely takes all of the power out of what those things were created for in the first place. The Bible tells us that we have nothing that we didn't receive. Everything that you and I possess is a gift from God. God has given to us. And the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that if we have received those things, then what right do we ever have to boast as though we earned those things or obtained those things somehow in and of ourselves? God did not gift us in any way or give us any resource or any capacity or any ability so that we could bring ourselves up over against someone else or that we could feel good when we compare ourselves with others that maybe don't measure up where we're strong. God gave us what he gave us to bring glory to him and yes, also for our enjoyment. But we must, as Christians, live our lives through the lens of Romans eleven thirty six, which says that all things are of him, through him, and for him. Or to him. Which means that anything that I have in my life is God initiated. It's of him. Everything that I possess, every talent, every opportunity, every resource is from God. He's the originator and the initiator of it. Second of all, it's through him. Meaning that whatever accomplishments I achieve, whatever my life does, whatever fruit comes out of what I first of all have, all of that has been wrought and done by God. He's given me those opportunities and the platform and the ability to do all the things that I've done because he wants to bless me and bring glory to his name through my life. So it's through him. And ultimately, the reason why those things are there and those things are done is number three, for him. That is, it's for God's glory and that he would be seen and magnified and elevated, not self. And when the abilities... And the accomplishments, the talents, and the resources of my life are used to beautify, magnify, and satisfy self, then that's what the Bible calls the pride of life. And when I'm finding my satisfaction in the pride of life, John tells me that I'm loving the world, and that if I'm loving the world, it's an indication that the love of the Father is not in me. And so uh, it's vital that we understand. So John tells us that to live in the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is to love the world and that to love the world means that the love of the Father is absent in my life and God doesn't compete. So God steps aside and he allows us to seek fulfillment in the things that he knows can, can, can never satisfy. So what's the reason then why it's foolish for someone to live for the things of this world or to give themselves for the love of the world to the things of the world. And the reason why, John tells us, is because of the longevity of the two and what they promise. He tells us there at the end of the passage that the world is passing away with its affections and its lusts, but whoever does the will of God will abide forever. And John brings it down to one very simple reason why it's a foolish choice for a Christian to love the world and to live for the world rather than to love God and to live for God. And that is because whatever the world promises and the world gives cannot last. But whatever God gives and what God provides, that is eternal and you can never lose it at all. Um, one of my um, childhood idols in, in the folly of my youth was Arnold Schwarzenegger. One of the first movies that I ever saw, and I was way too young to see it, but I was on a sleepover and my parents had no control over it, was the, the movie Commando. 
you know, with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And, you know, he's the big military hero and he goes in and I think he kills something like a thousand people by himself and, you know, robs an ammunition store and, you know, and, and this whole thing. And, and just became fascinated with this, this superhero, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And Arnold really is, is kind of the picture uh, of worldly success when you look at his life and all that he's accomplished. When Arnold Schwarzenegger was 15 years old in Austria, he saw a movie with Reg Park, who was a bodybuilder back in those days. And, and Reg Park was a superhero in the movie as a bodybuilder. And something clicked in Arnold's mind. This is from his own uh, words when he was that age that he decided, that's what I want to do with my life. And at the age of 15, he found his way into a gym and he said, I want to be a professional bodybuilder. And from that time on, he never gave up on that goal. And by the, you know, the time of his late teens, he had served a short stint in the Austrian military and he decided he wanted to go to America because if he was ever going to make it as a bodybuilder, he needed to be an American. And he was told at that time that he would never make it in, in the American sports life because he didn't speak the language and because he was a foreigner and because he you know, was kind of strange and, and weird and the whole thing. But he wouldn't listen to that, and he came to America anyways. And by the time he was 20 years old, he began competing and winning in bodybuilding competitions in the United States. By the time he was 30 years old, he had won the Olympia six times which was unheard of, uh, you know, by anyone at that time. And he retired from bodybuilding because he wanted to pursue his lifelong dream of becoming an actor. But when he left bodybuilding, he was told that he would never make it in Hollywood. And the reason was because his name was way too long, because his accent was way too heavy, and that his physique was way too big and way far away from the proportions of what would ever be acceptable. But he didn't listen to any of that, and he pursued his dream, and he landed a role in Conan the Barbarian. And, and he was accepted. It was taken. And so not long, he was on his way to superstardom. And by the early 80s and then the late 80s, his name became kind of a household name as he became the star of all these uh, movies and the whole thing. Well, he retired from movie making after making a name for himself. And at the age of 57, he became the governor of California. <laughs> you know, the governator, as someone said, right? You know, and, and, and now, you know, now the guy's still alive. He's 70 years old. He's made millions of dollars in real estate and bodybuilding. He's, he's kind of just become the name of, 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 of success and all these different things in his life. And, and people look at him and they aspire and use him as a role model of what it means to be successful. But recently, Arnold Schwarzenegger was asked the question about his thoughts on death. And what he feels towards death and what man should do to try to avoid death. And this was the quote. This is what Arnold said in response to that question. He said, I have always been extremely upset about the idea of death. I, I would be doing this in his accent, but it would distract you from our spiritual purposes and things completely and just be way too entertaining, so I'm not going to do that. <laughs> he says, but I've always been extremely upset about the idea of death. It's such a waste. I know it's inevitable, but what is that? Your whole life you work, you improve yourself, you make money, invest, have experiences, a whole bunch of fun, and then all of a sudden, poof, it's over. Death upsets me now more than ever. And it's an amazing testimony from his own life and to think that one day that man is going to stand in the courts of heaven and he's going to hear those words coming out of his mouth and he's going to see the tape played of his whole successful life and he's going to see the gaping eyes of every young man and woman that aspired to be successful in the way that he was successful. And he's going to, be, going to realize on that day that everything that he did in his whole life was a complete waste because he can't take any of it with him when he dies. He leaves all of it here behind Scott Clay uh, used to come to this church. He's a police officer in um, Phoenix, Arizona now. And recently he was called on a call in an upscale neighborhood of North Phoenix because there was a naked man who was seen running through someone's yard and he dashed into a house. And so he you know, got, went to the call and he was by himself and he knocked on the door of the house where the man was seen running into and this guy came to the door and as he opened the door there was a wall of the smell of booze that just kind of plowed over him and just pushed him backwards as he came through and this guy's there dressed in a towel. And he said, hey, how you doing? You know, he just had a report of a man running in the house. He goes, was that you? And the guy goes, yeah, it was me. He goes, okay. He goes, what's your name? Got any ID? You know? The guy said to him, he goes, well, yeah. He goes, uh, my name is, is Justin, Justin Chamberlain. 
But you might know me by my nickname, Jabba, pitcher for the Yankees. He went on to tell him, he said, I was cut from the team just today. I just found out. My job is no longer. And he said, I drank a little bit too much, got a little carried away. And the guy said, all right, well, the neighbor doesn't want to press charges, but they don't want you running naked through their yard anymore in the whole thing. <laughs> but you just think about someone who was the picture of success. Tens of thousands of people, night after night, cheering out and calling your name. Money coming in. Sponsorships and endorsements coming in cover of Sports Illustrated, and then all of a sudden, in one day, you get a letter, and it's all over. And then what is there to live for? You have a man who is the picture of success, who has nothing but misery that he's sitting on a pile of, and he has nothing to do but to drink himself into his stupor. I was shocked, but not shocked the other day when I opened up the pages of the news headlines and saw that Tiger Woods had been picked up yet again for DUI and, uh, you know, being arrogant and obstinate towards the police. And here's a man on top of his game. I mean, th th he's just a couple of years older than me, but when I was in high school, he was making millions of dollars playing golf. And the amount of people that have looked at his life and that have used him as a, a role model and an idol, and to look now and to see that for everything that he has, at one point they said he was worth $1.4 billion and now can't find enough satisfaction to make it through a night without either taking something or drinking something or doing something that lands him in absolute misery, ruin of reputation, and destruction. This world is competing for the love of people, but it cannot deliver on its promise to give that which it promises. It only leaves emptiness because satisfaction can never be obtained by the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And John says, for the very sake of how long these pleasures last, he says, do not love the world. And if we love the world, it's a sure sign that the love of the Father is not in us. Now, we understand that every single day, people in the world fall and are given to these things, the Jabba's, the Tiger's, the Arnold's, and all the rest. But sadly, it isn't just the people of the world. It happens in the church. It happens in the kingdom of God. The people forsake their first love and they turn to the things of the world to be some source of their satisfaction and they become shipwrecked in their lives and in their faith as well. We read of Eve and Adam there at the very beginning who had it better than any human being ever had it. And out of a desire for the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, that's what Satan used. The tree was pleasant to the eyes, it was good for food, and it was desirous to make one wise. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And they traded what they had that was eternal for that which could never satisfy and which brought ruin upon them and their descendants. Esau. He was the firstborn. He was entitled to have the blessing and to be the one through whom the Messiah would come into the world. But for a cup of soup, he traded all of it away and he despised his birthright. Achan, a man who had the privilege of being part of the conquest of the children of Israel when they came into the promised land, he saw a wedge of gold and a Babylonianish garment and he lusted after them and he stole them when God said the, the spoils of the battle go to me and Achan for the sake of gold and a garment that lasted a week that he had to bury in the ground he lost his life and he brought shame upon his family King Saul who was the first king of Israel anointed and ordained of God had a high calling and a high privilege and a promise that was placed upon his life be yeah, a King Saul because he loved the prestige and the praise of men and he lived for the pride of this life. He traded that kingdom and his life ultimately ended in shame and embarrassment. The man Gehazi who was called to be the servant of Elisha there in the time of the kings who had it in his destiny to be the prophet in the place of Elisha as Elisha had been in the place of Elijah but because he wanted the gold and the silver that Naaman the leper promised when he had been healed and secretly went and asked for it rather than becoming a prophet of God and having his name stamped upon this world for good and a godly impact he went down as a leper and he went down as shame and a picture of those that are shipwrecked loving the world we read of Judas who had just the single greatest privilege of being one of the apostles of the lamb and yet for 30 pieces of silver 
And because he wanted an earthly throne, he was willing to betray the very Son of God and for love of the world to betray a place where his name would have been in the foundation stones of heaven forever. One of the apostles of the Lamb because he loved the world. I think of Simon the sorcerer and the ministry of Peter in the early days of the church. A man who had the potential to be greatly used of God, but because he loved the praises of men and he loved the riches and the dominating that it felt like to rule over people. He said to Peter, I'll give you money. Give me also this this ability to lay hands on people that they would receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter looked at him and said, your money perish with you. I perceive that you're in the gall of bitterness. And Simon forfeited his place in that which is eternal for that which ultimately left him blind and ashamed. I think of Demas, whom Pastor Bobby will be preaching on most likely this Sunday as he finishes his study in 2 Timothy, of whom we read that he was a laborer with the Apostle Paul, but Paul would say that because he loved this world, he's departed from me and he's gone into Thessalonica. And a man who had the privilege of co-laboring with the Apostle Paul became absolutely nothing and a proverb of apostasy because he loved this present world. And what every single one of these people, Christian, potential, godly, called people, the common denominator in every one of their lives is that they traded something of infinite value for something that was temporary and a treasure that didn't last. It's been well said by someone, I don't know who said it, but they said, he is no fool who trades what he cannot keep. Wait, I'm going to get this wrong. There, he is no fool who trades what he cannot keep for that which he cannot lose, or who won't trade what he cannot keep for that which he cannot lose. In other words, if I trade or keep earthly things at the expense of eternal things, then that makes me an absolute moron. Because God has called us to eternal glory and virtue. He that does the will of God will abide forever. And so in closing, how do we overcome a love for the world? And the musicians can come as we close out our study here tonight. Are you guys here? Good. Yeah. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15... The Apostle Paul prays a prayer for the Ephesian church that I believe holds the answer for you and I. Because the reality is sometimes, isn't it, that don't we get drawn into worldly loves? Things can grab a hold of us or or, or seek our attention or we find ourselves drifting away from God into the things of the world. And I want you to just hear what Paul had to say to the Ephesian church and let it be the answer or the remedy for you and I concerning the plight of worldly love in this world that we live in. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, He said, wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love to the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Here's his prayer. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Notice that there's something that is God-initiated that is imparted to the believer. Here it is. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you might know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Or to say that in more modern language, you would say, and that you would know what the riches of glory of his inheritance is in the saints. In other words, that God would open our eyes and our understanding that we would know and comprehend what it is exactly that we've been called into and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. And listen, listen here. The fullness of him that fills all 
in all. Paul says, I pray for you daily that the Holy Spirit of God would get into your life in such a way that the eyes of your understanding would be opened and that you would know what is the exceeding glory of the riches of His calling and the power that works in us and the fullness that He can provide in that life. Here's the remedy for worldly love. We need to be daily filled with the person, presence, and power of the Holy Spirit of God. That it needs to be a daily part of my prayer and of my life to seek Him in His person and to ask Him and say, God, I need to be filled with Your Holy Spirit today. I need to be influenced by Your life and by Your love. I need my understanding and my eyes to be open to see eternal things and to discern earthly things so that I'm not subverted, trapped, and carried away in the love of the world. God, I want your love to satisfy my life and not the things of the world. To love the world and to be satisfied by worldly loves means that I'm not truly satisfied at all because worldly things can never satisfy the soul of man. We were designed to be in fellowship with God and to be satisfied by fellowship with God. And until we find that place, we grope in darkness missing out on the greatest love that God has for our life. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away with its affections and its lusts. But he or she that does the will of God abides forever. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for the power of it and the truth of it. We thank you for how it impacts our lives and the things that you so freely give to us. And tonight we ask, Lord, that you would take away any affection in us for anything that cannot truly last and anything that's a competing love or competing affection with yours and that you would set our eyes and our mind and our hearts so completely on you that our lives would be transfixed, that our hearts would be transformed and that our whole being would be transfigured. Oh, God, that you would give us yourself. So as you've been here speaking to us, we pray now that your spirit would come and fill us. Oh, Lord, that your love would permeate and fill us again. We thank you, Lord, that you do this, and we so desperately need it. So hear us now and fill us as we yield our hearts to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we?